0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, the interlude we became, Episode 2, The Doom That Came to Staten.
1: We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it.
0: Hi folks, welcome to Summer Break as we continue our vacation from Temerant and spending some more time in N. K. Jemison's version of the Big Apple in The City We Became. Today we're going to be covering chapters 3 through 5 of this book.
1: Before we go much further, let's just get the content warning out of the way. While this book is a lot of fun, it features frank discussions of race, gender, and sexuality in contemporary America from the perspective of marginalized communities. It is important stuff as in, important with a capital I, and it is worth learning about. It also uses what famed Premier League broadcaster Arlo White would refer to as fruity language. If you can handle that, we hope you'll give it a listen. As always, we assume that you have read the associated passage, or at least don't mind spoilers. Naturally, we also want you to be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Finally, say it with me now, we are in no way affiliated with N.K. Jemison or her publisher, Orbit Books. All right, time to dive in.
0: Sounds good. So last week we left off with Brooklyn and Manhattan finally meeting up and deciding to go find the other boroughs.
1: Starting, I believe, with Queens.
0: Yep. And we start here with Our Lady of Staten Island, who is the avatar of another one of the boroughs, Staten Island specifically. Her name is Eileen Houlihan. Now, to be fair, the Irish pronunciation of the way her name is spelled would be Ashlyn, but that's not how she pronounces it. It's Eileen.
1: And we don't get that explanation for a few more pages. So it was tough for me to read through this going, but wait, her name's Ashlyn. Her name's Ashlyn. It cannot possibly be Ashland. That doesn't sound right. Everybody else is either Brooklyn or Manny or or Paulo for Sao Paulo, and I'm like, there's something Americanized going on in here, which I think is perfect when you consider that this character is the lone white avatar of the boroughs.
0: And it's also kind of fitting that she is Irish in the way that everyone is Irish on St. Patrick's Day.
1: Although her surname actually does seem to have Irish roots. What I'm saying, though, is that this is like the people that decide to name their kid Caden and then have it be like 15,000 letters long. And most of them are silent, I hope.
0: The Welsh spelling, huh? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Island. So she is young, she's white, and she suffers from anxiety. And when we meet her, she is waiting for the afternoon ferry to the city. Because as far as she is concerned, that's always what you refer to New York City as. The city.
1: Well, it's also fitting that she's taken Staten Island and made it its own thing that is not part of the city. Because in a way... At least according to the story, Staten Island really isn't, but is, but isn't, but is part of New York.
0: If you've ever lived in the suburb of a major metropolitan area, it can be really easy to fall into this sort of feeling. You know, if you live in a suburb and work in the city, it's a different experience. You experience the city only in visits, and most of your actual living occurs in these little suburban areas that have very loose connections to the concerns of the actual city itself.
1: I know when we lived near Seattle, it was really tempting and easier to tell people, oh yeah, I live in Seattle. We lived anywhere between half an hour, an hour, hour and a half, depending on traffic, away from Seattle, and almost never went to Seattle.
0: Well, and part of that was... It cost extra money to go when things like toll bridges went up and traffic was so prohibitive. You know, a night in the city was, it was an expensive proposition between that and parking or public transit. It wasn't something you just pop over and do.
1: Right. I mean, like I've lived in Spokane, which is the actual city of Spokane. Now it's sprawling and my address was Spokane. And downtown Spokane really isn't that formidable in terms of like going to Seattle is formidable. Going to Spokane is like the city part of that city is maybe four square blocks.
0: Yeah, it's not huge. I also lived in Spokane. <laughs> That's where we met. And downtown Spokane is kind of a blink and you miss it affair.
1: Despite the fact that there are like five or six exits off the freeway for it.
0: Oh, yeah. They come fast and furious.
1: But like, I've also lived in other cities. I've lived in Medford, Oregon. And really, like, there isn't that same kind of downtown core in any of the cities in southern Oregon. They're almost all suburb-esque. Now, we live in a suburb now. And I don't think that we ever really want to live in the proper city of Portland. And we barely go there. So I can definitely see how Staten Island would be extremely isolated, especially if your main mode of transport from Staten Island to anywhere else is via ferry.
0: Yeah, that's a big one right there. If you've got the ferry and one bridge, you know that is pretty easy to get cut off.
1: And if everything that you need is on your island...
0: You're generally not going to leave unless you absolutely have to.
1: Right. And in this case, Staten Island, also the avatar, winds up being very agoraphobic. Very isolated.
0: Insular. Yes. She is someone who's absorbed the attitudes that a lot of suburbanites have, where they view the city as where crime happens where people are weird and strange and they look at you funny.
1: Where it's scary.
0: And oftentimes that's where the people of color live is her attitude.
1: In this case, it's really an interesting view at what someone who is not white sees from like the stereotypical white person, what she sees that white suburbanite as. Now, I don't think that N.K. Jemison is thinking that there's no multitudes within the communities like Staten Island that are more insular. Like, I know when I lived in Spokane, which is a much more conservative place, I felt like I had to be a little more conformist and a little more safe with my appearance. And then I moved away. I started expressing myself more and at the time I started wearing loud colored socks and camo shorts and being more out there with my expression and I went back to Spokane briefly and I'm like oh oh I don't feel comfortable and then I moved back to Seattle and I started doing things like changing my hair to purple and being a lot more stereotypical looking non-binary person. And I've gone back to Spokane since, and I have felt like, uh -uh. Uh -uh, uh -uh. Uh uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. People think that I'm the frightening person, but there are way more of you than there are of me. And I feel like I need a hat right now or something. Was way worse when we went to Arkansas, though. And I was in the bathroom and I'm like, people don't realize that I belong in this bathroom. There are going to be people who think that I shouldn't be in the women's bathroom. And there are not any gender neutral bathrooms in this building. And I actually felt like I was in danger. And I am the color of a sheet of paper. (laughs) I cannot fathom how awful someone who is black or who is you know god forbid scare quotes from a different country i can't imagine how intimidating it would feel just to go to the bathroom yeah i can kind of understand what it would be like for someone who is trans because i can probably be read as at least gender non-conforming and be scary to the people that would be considered karens but man like you keep going further down the deviate off of standard appearance standard gender expression white person and it just adds a layer of one more one more one more thing to just focus on and build up in your head as scary. But honestly, that is the person that Island is being portrayed as. She is very racist in a way that is clear that all of the attitudes she has around people of color come from her cop dad.
0: And that actually is something else I wanted to bring up. So her dad is representative of this movement that we see in a lot of urban police forces where the officers in charge of law enforcement within a metropolitan area, a downtown metropolitan area in particular, are almost by design completely cut off from that as far as where they live. So they live in suburban places like Staten Island or in the Portland area, they're living out in like Sherwood or farther out, or even Vancouver, Washington. So they don't have the connection to the community at all.
1: And typically, at least in my experience, Vancouver, drastically different attitudes towards people of color, towards people who deviate off of the norm or off of the conservative white norm than the people of Portland proper.
0: You go from... Blue State, Oregon to Red State, Washington. Pretty much. So there's a little bit of that dichotomy there. And so while Island is waiting for the ferry, she has accidental contact with a black man, and this triggers a panic attack that causes her to flee from the ferry. We don't know exactly why she's going to the ferry, but we do know that it's an unusual behavior for her because it's three in the afternoon. And going to the city after three is not normal. She's going against the flow of traffic, really.
1: And for her, appearing normal is safe, is expected, is, I don't know, proper?
0: Yeah, well, and she is worried that if she stands out even a little bit, it's going to be something that will get back to her dad, who will then punish her for any activity that she does that he hasn't sanctioned.
1: And it's really icky because she's in her late 20s, early 30s?
0: Early 30s.
1: And she's still living at home. Her father has absolute control over her.
0: She doesn't really have a job per se. She just is effectively living at home with her parents and under their control. You kind of get the sense that If her dad had his way, he would just find someone for her to marry, and then that's what it'll take to get her out of his hair.
1: But I don't think that he wants her out of his hair. I think the control bit of finding someone for her to marry is also finding someone that he can have authority over still and by proxy rule over her.
0: He definitely is a control freak.
1: Like this goes up to the line of being physically and sexually abusive to his daughter who is in her
0: 30s? We don't know a whole lot of the specifics about what he has done, but it's clear that at the very least he's been emotionally manipulative and controlling her entire life.
1: And frightening the crap out of her.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He seems to be creating a bunker mentality. Anyone who's not with me is against me, and I'm the only one who can protect you from the world out there. It's a scary world. He seems like he's feeding her horror stories night and day about the horrors of the city. So before Island can run too far, she encounters the woman in white. And this is the first time that Island has really encountered something otherworldly.
1: But before that, it is notable, she, in her panic, scratches a random somebody and internalizes that behavior as something criminal, as assault, as I'm going to get caught, as there are going to be other security officers who have eyes and ears and will report back to my father.
0: Yeah, she's really catastrophizing every little bit here. I mean, this is literally an incidental scratch. This is the sort of thing where most people, this sort of thing happens. It's nothing more than a, oops, sorry about that. But her
1: reaction is what is going to get the attention, which I think also points to that stereotypical Karen, your reaction is what goes viral. You're over the top overreaction.
0: It's the sort of, don't start nothing, won't be nothing. And here we can see Eileen is treating herself like she's committed a crime and she's acting like she's committed a crime, which makes her look way more suspicious than if she just said, oh, sorry about that, and then moved on about her day.
1: So runs out of the fairy terminal and is approached by a very, very, very white
0: woman. The woman in white identifies her as an avatar and is really the first one to actually help Island make sense of her identity.
1: Except it's not really clicking. It's just weird.
0: It's just sort of lingering in the back of her skull.
1: And the woman in white says things that Island finds weird and off-putting. But because she's white, she couldn't possibly be that dangerous, just crazy.
0: Well, and it's also sort of the white feminist feel where Eileen thinks of herself as a feminist of sorts, and is drawn to particularly people who identify as feminist who look like her. She does not have a whole lot of space for intersectionality.
1: This is what we call a turf.
0: Yeah, among other things.
1: A racist turf.
0: So while all of this is happening, she gets a phone call from her dad. And like I say, we learn a little bit more about him. He's xenophobic, racist, and there's something that he's been doing in conditioning in Island all her life. He's conditioned her to always be on edge. A lot of her anxieties stem from the way he's raised her, you know, he's pretty much raised her to believe that anyone from the city, and anyone who isn't white especially, is a threat. And they're the ones that she's got to watch out for, even as crime does happen on Staten Island and crime is committed by white people there. Those aren't the criminals that she's afraid of. So while this phone conversation is happening, we notice that the woman in white is one, constantly keeping her hand on Island's shoulder, and also just reaching out and touching other people as they pass. And this is notable because, so like Island has a very intense personal space bubble. She does not like when people invade it, but for some reason she is okay when the woman is there.
1: I don't know that she's okay. I just think that she's not protesting.
0: She seems to write it off. Let's put it that way.
1: Again, as crazy, but not dangerous.
0: And the woman, meanwhile, is also invading the spaces of other people with abandon. Like she's just touching them, planting little tendrils on the back of their skulls, adding these little infections that are going to spread all over the city.
1: But the way she's characterized is so uncanny. The word swivels. Instead of turns her head back to island, she swivels her head back to island.
0: Yeah. It's sort of like a video game character living in the real world. There is a musculature and a skeletal system and everything, but it's not actually hooked up the way ours is. And there's something weird manipulating it.
1: Like it's being otherworldly animated.
0: Yeah. It's in that uncanny valley. It's just normal enough that you think, yeah, that's okay. But there's that hint of the strange.
1: Again, referencing Men in Black, it's like she's wearing an Edgar suit.
0: Little bit. We also note that the woman in white thinks of Island as someone who's similar to her. If Island had her way, everything would be pretty homogenous and easy and conformist and white. Yeah, be very homogenous. And so already the two of them think similarly, if not identically.
1: The island is also very easily manipulated and very easily convinced of her own superiority, regardless of the fact that she is a nervous wreck. And she is also easily manipulated into believing that the other is dangerous
0: she's easily manipulated into believing that she's the victim of some perceived slight we get a little bit here about how the woman is driving a bit of a wedge between island and the other boroughs she says oh they didn't think of you you weren't their first thought and i mean if there's five of them And you're not their first thought. That doesn't mean you're their last thought or that you're not a priority.
1: Right. Two of them have found one another and now they have to find the other three. You're the most inconvenient to get to. It is kind of natural that you pick up people along the way or you find the lowest common denominator and then move on from there. You do the knocking out the easiest thing first
0: you get those low hanging fruits and then as you do so, other fruit becomes lower hanging.
1: It's the same way that I work when I have like Jira tasks, if anyone is familiar with that. I get the ones that are going to take the least amount of time out of the way so that I actually don't have them hanging over my head when I have to do the big thing, unless the big thing has a nearer deadline where it wouldn't be feasible to do it that way. but It doesn't mean you're not a priority.
0: Or that you don't matter. It just means that, yeah, they haven't come to her yet because it hasn't made sense for that to happen. And there's a bit of manipulation here in all of this. And I feel like here the woman in white is preying on Island's insecurities and her fears that she's somehow someone who doesn't belong, that she's an outsider.
1: She's also, though, manipulating island's sense of entitlement
0: right they should be thinking of you first you're so much more important than all of them they couldn't do anything without you
1: yeah the pattering the being spoken to so much that you can't form your own thoughts there's a section in here that's about the woman just being insidious and infecting island and now you have to live with that truth that is why you're afraid of the ferry. Half the people on this island absolutely dread crossing that water every day. They know that what awaits them on the other end isn't the power and the glamour that we can see from here, but bad jobs and worse pay and prancing man-bunned baristas who turn up their noses at making just a simple goddamn coffee. And I'm not going to say words that are nope, that just doesn't cross my lips, but, and prissy, horrible words for East Asian women who barely speak English, but make seven figures gambling with your 401k and feminists and Jews, and I'm not saying the T word, and there's an implication of the N word, and then, and liberals.
0: It's definitely a suburbanite Fox News version of the city.
1: Not saying the next word, but a pejorative for liberals everywhere. Making the world safe for every kind of pervert. And then the other half of the island is all those people. Ashamed that they can't afford to live there and leave Staten Island for good. So this does speak to... Island's impulse to leave, Island's dichotomy of this racist ash that feels like they are a good person.
0: Yeah, That push and pull, that divided identity, because as the avatar, Island embodies all of these identities, both the good and the bad, the part that does want to be able to live in the city and express herself that longs to be free from this sort of parochial backwater mentality. And then the part that lives in fear of leaving that behind.
1: But a little bit of what was said breaks Island out of this trance. And she just goes, but, but I don't have a 401k. I laughed out loud. I really did. I was just like, yeah. The thing about it is that you're so afraid of having things taken away from you. These uptight white people, in terms like the capital W, I have seen it spelled out W-H-Y-T-E people, that are so afraid of all of these things happening to them, all of these threats to them, but they're not actual threats because they don't have the thing that they're afraid is being taken away.
0: I think this also sort of speaks to the dilemma of the modern middle-aged millennial. You know, most of us haven't been in any given job long enough for a 401k to, to vest. That's pretty telling. All we know about Island is that if she's had jobs, they've been low-level service industry jobs on the island itself, not actually going into New York City. She hasn't really stuck with anything long enough to really have an opportunity to have anything that could theoretically be stolen from her. Everything that she really has, all of her stability comes from her family, and her family is the thing that's holding her back. At this point, the woman gives her an offer. Basically, hey, I'll be your friend. If you ever need me, just call me and hey, look, here's this handy little, uh, fungal spore thing that you can talk into, it, and I'll hear you. Don't worry.
1: Think of it as a camera, if you want. Or a microphone.
0: It's an Alexa.
1: It's omnipresent and always listening.
0: Yep. Thanks, Bezos. I hate it.
1: Sorry if you're listening to this on an Alexa.
0: (laughs) And here is where we get our first hint at the woman in white's identity. All we know is that her name starts with an R... And it has a whole bunch of squamous syllables that come after it that people who have read H.B. Lovecraft might recognize. That's all we're going to say about it. And
1: then she kind of just disappears. It's like a magic trick. And Island is left going, What just happened to me?
0: Yeah. Island resolves to herself to think of her as Rosie, which, okay, fine.
1: She gets on a bus. Thinks about the weird woman in white that she just had an interaction with, maybe. Thinks, okay, well, she's clearly not from around here, but probably from someplace like Canada. Because Canada is a safe white place. And basically just decides to go home. And turtle.
0: Alright, so now we get to our first interruption. These little interruptions follow the goings-on of Sao Paulo as he works to help bring the city to life and help sort of protect it in its infancy. Here we see him struggling with the fact that his internal sense of direction just isn't working.
1: He's in a different hemisphere. He's in an unfamiliar city. While it's great that there is a grid system of roads in Manhattan, which, I mean, that would probably be my only saving grace, he feels like it's still foreign to him.
0: And if we think about him as someone who has spent most of his life living in the city of Sao Paulo and being and embodying it, someone who is used to inhabiting this city so fully that to say that he knows the city of Sao Paulo like the back of his hand is a little bit too much because it is not just the back of his hand, it's his entire body. Like, He understands all of it fundamentally at this truly organic level. And New York City is not that for him. So he's completely not used to that.
1: First of all, it's winter where he is from, where he embodies. And it is muggy, icky, gross, hot, humid
0: summer in New York. The entire eastern seaboard is pretty miserable during the summer like this.
1: I haven't experienced summer in New York, but I have experienced, I think it was July in Virginia. And the thing I remember about that trip to Virginia is when I was on Virginia Beach around three or four in the afternoon, the entire ocean would be sucked up and moved over and dumped, hyperbole. But a lot of the ocean would be sucked up and moved over and dumped in thunderstorms. Like it would hit this kind of wall of humidity and gross and electric charge and then just cloud over and thunder and and then it was back to sunny skies.
0: Rinse and repeat. Exactly. So Sao Paulo finds his way to Inwood Park, which is where Manny and Brooklyn had their confrontation with the woman in white. And... We see that even as they did manage to drive her off, it was not what you would call a total victory.
1: There are people. Infected people. Fungal
0: growths. They're just kind of milling around gentrifying the place. Like, they're constantly talking, but they're not talking to each other. They are talking to their phones. So they're either live streaming, or they are just talking on speakerphone, or they're just talking about the things that they are looking at, but not actually in communion with it. They're sitting here talking about the lower rents and authentic Dominican food, but they don't want any of the messy stuff like the loud music or anything like that. It's really a case of performative culture. I kind of feel like anytime someone who looks like me says that this is an authentic restaurant as opposed to an Americanized restaurant. One, someone who looks like me is generally not equipped to make that judgment.
1: Right, like I don't wanna frequent an Indian restaurant whose owner looks like me.
0: But I also don't wanna be the one who can take a sample of something and say, oh yeah, this is authentic for sure.
1: I don't want to be that person either. I can tell you that the food tastes good or if it doesn't taste good, but I cannot tell you (laughs) if it tastes like it would where it was originated. Also, I can't tell you where it was originated because most authentic Indian food is British.
0: And really, authenticity is not something that most of us are really equipped to make a judgment on. It's an artificial term, ironically. Because
1: honestly, like the climate in Oregon is so much different than the climate in like Hyderabad. And different food grows in different places.
0: It's not just the climate. It's also the soil composition, the water. All of these things play a role in how things taste. And so even just trying to do something like fajitas, right? to tell you a story here. So in 2005, I went to Germany and stayed for a couple weeks with a host family, with my aunt as well. I was part of a study tour. And one of the nights there, we decided, hey, let's do a Mexican meal for our host family. We'll make fajitas. So we went to the grocery store and started looking for all the stuff to make fajitas. So yeah, we could find onions, we could find tomatoes, But we had a hard time finding things like peppers or salsa, you know, all of these little things that we kind of think of as part of a fajita, right?
1: At least what people from the US think of as fajitas.
0: Right. So all of these very basic things, they just weren't there because they don't grow natively there. So peppers especially, not really a thing. And it was kind of tricky and it was a little weird. We had to make some substitutions. That's what happens when you try and translate a recipe that is from one part of the world into another.
1: The other thing, I haven't had this particular experience, but we do have friends that lived in Sweden for a while and they were from the Pacific Northwest. And there are photos that they've posted on Facebook that are the American, quote, section. Like we have the Chinese section and the Thai section. We have all of these sections in the international aisle of our grocery store that includes things for fajitas, but the things that are in the what do Americans eat? Oh, God. So I cannot begin to guess at how absolutely wrong everything that we list as being from a different country is.
0: The point really here, though, in this bit is that These are people who are spending all their time experiencing the world as filtered through social media and conversations with other people rather than actually experiencing the thing for itself. It's like sort of living for Instagram where you're spending more time taking a picture of your meal than actually experiencing it and talking with the people there. It's going on a live streaming service and streaming everything that you're doing And so you're basically living through this screen instead of actually living in the world as it exists and interacting with it directly and the people around you. You're caring more about your viewers than you are with your neighbors. You're caring more about this performative aspect as opposed to this actual experiential side.
1: And that's why I've stopped taking photos of fireworks displays, because... I used to just take a camera with me and photograph all of the pretty lights, but I didn't get to experience it as a whole. I didn't really get to experience it at all. It was all about getting that perfect shot. Now, that can be something that you enjoy on its own, but I decided that I have a lot of photographs of fireworks, but I'd rather experience them from now on.
0: Yeah. I kind of look at this as these are people who are caught up in trying to be influencers and content creators rather than actually being authentic people. They're more concerned with their brand than with their identity.
1: And just to go back to the whole restaurant idea, one of my favorite restaurants that we've gone to was something that was owned by a very small family where they remembered us when we came in and... Their food was great, but that wasn't the thing that made me want to go back there. Small Indian restaurant in Woodinville, Washington. I really hope that they are thriving still and that COVID didn't kill their restaurant because they were just such lovely people. And that's what I remember about going there. And what all of this manufactured culture, this gentrification, this I'm going to tear down the family-owned restaurant and put up a chain restaurant once we build the condo place. It robs the experience of so much.
0: I think there's also a fairly damning critique here of the tech industry, you know, especially the social media companies, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, you name it. These are globalizing forces that get people thinking about their global audience instead of their actual local experience. And they serve to make your world seem bigger, but it actually gets smaller. And they make it easier to just live in your head. That's one of the telling bits here that I think is definitely worth interrogating, especially as we consider how do we interact with these social platforms. I am far from convinced that there is redeeming value (laughs) in any of them. You know, I kind of hate Twitter. I kind of hate Facebook. I kind of hate Instagram. I have yet to find a social media platform where I feel good.
1: So my only reason that I don't absolutely hate Twitter is because I have muted so many words. Anytime anything on Twitter makes me kind of mad... I mute the things that make me mad. Yeah. So yeah, right now, my Twitter is mostly other podcasts.
0: So Sao Paulo takes a picture of all of this. It is notable. All the money still on the ground. And the credit cards. Yes. Yeah, I probably want to get those canceled, dude. (laughs) So Sao Paulo then reports this scene to an international number and he says, Yeah, we got Burroughs. Looks like five of them. I'm going to need some help. All right. So then we come to chapter four, Boogie Down Bronca and the Bathroom Stall of Doom.
1: I really love the chapter names.
0: Oh, yeah, they're great. (laughs) (laughs) So we start meeting our avatar of the Bronx, Bronca, who is this artist who has been around for a long time. She's... Been a fixture of the Bronx and helps run a local art gallery. And when we meet her, she's in the middle of a fairly ugly dispute with her co-worker Yi Jing in the bathroom.
1: Fairly ugly as in when their supervisor comes into the bathroom. One of the critiques that she gives to Bronca is, I didn't think that you, of all people, would go in for the slut shaming.
0: One of the things that I appreciate about this is that while Bronca is generally on the side of righteousness, she's a fighter, you know, she's been through a lot, she's also messy. She is imperfect, she is flawed, and she does not always fight fair, especially when she feels like she's in the right. She will go scorched earth. She is not necessarily a pleasant person. She's not always likable. And none of the boroughs are, right? They all have their weird hang-ups, their weird flaws about them.
1: They all feel like people, but they also all feel like stereotypes, which I think is genius in this because they represent so many people distilled into one person.
0: Exactly. And Bronca is no different. So yeah, she's got history and she remembers every slight. She remembers every grudge and she remembers every insult, whether real or perceived, and she will respond in kind. So right now she and Yijing are in conflict over a grant proposal that Yijing left her out of. Even though Bronca hasn't really made anything in the past several years, she's mostly been working on the gallery.
1: She's been mostly administrative.
0: Really, Yijing hasn't done anything inherently wrong here, but she has bruised Bronca's ego. And yeah, it's kind of gross when the two of them get into it. Nominally, these are people who should be allies.
1: It is also, though, interesting to see how someone who does not identify as conservative can also dig their heels in and not enjoy change.
0: Yeah, I think what this is really pointing us out to is that people contain multitudes and it's not as simple as white, bad, people of color, good or anything like that or vice versa. It is people are complex. People do things for themselves. People hurt one another. All of us are capable of it, and that's part of life. None of us are saints. None of us are even heroes, necessarily. And we don't have to be. We're just people.
1: But we're also not all
0: villains. I like that Bronca is allowed to be messy and complicated and, you know, have this connection to the past. So Jess, who is the director of the experimental theater program at this gallery, kind of intervenes and heads things off at the past because she recognizes there's a more serious thing to consider right now than a matter of ego.
1: First of all, their argument can be heard outside of the bathroom, and there are not really customers, but I guess patrons in the gallery, and it does not look good. For the staff to be arguing amongst themselves when they should be putting on this united front.
0: Because right now there's an outside group that wants to do a show, and not only is it bad art, as in low quality, there's something morally wrong with it. And the only way Jess and company can push back is if she has Bronca and Yi Jing both on side to help push it out.
1: And that, will be interesting, we aren't there yet. Because while Yijing leaves the bathroom, Bronca stays back to, I guess, wash her hands, just kind of collect herself. And she hears someone in one of the stalls call out and laugh. It's a
0: familiar voice.
1: At least to us, it's a familiar voice.
0: At this point, we realize that someone gloating about the foothold that they've established in Staten Island. Wonder who that might be.
1: I wonder. But at first, Bronca's kind of horrified that she and Yijing have kind of trapped someone uncomfortably in a bathroom stall for 20 minutes, as they've argued. But things just get weirder.
0: So at first we see Bronca looking under the doors of the stall to see are there feet, right? And there are no feet. She starts opening stalls one by one and there's nothing.
1: I would say that that is an escalation once she realizes that this isn't just some random patron stuck in the bathroom stall feeling awkward. That this is actually a dangerous presence where Staten Island was easily manipulated into siding with the woman in white Bronca is instantly suspicious and isn't being swayed to the woman in white's side
0: Bronca for all her stubbornness knows exactly who she is and exactly what her values are and Like I say, the thing that makes her so unlikable at times is also what gives her strength.
1: So at her age, she is put up with enough crap throughout her entire life. She's not going to do it anymore. An example of what happened and how she is truly aware of who she is, is that in her younger years, she was married. She's lesbian. She was married to a guy. This happens because society tells you that you're supposed to be attracted to the, quote, opposite gender, and that you're supposed to have that kind of life. And it turns out that despite having had a son with him, her ex-husband was secretly harboring feelings of being gay while she was secretly harboring feelings of being lesbian and They came together and go, so? And at that point, she just stopped letting other people's influence on her rule her life.
0: I love the way that Bronca describes how their marriage ended when they both realized that when they went to see aliens, Bronca was staring at Velasquez and her ex-husband was staring at Hicks. (laughs) You get the sense that they ended it fairly amicably, They actually respected one another more after when they realized they didn't have to hide who they were. They didn't have to pretend to feel like they were attracted to one another. They could just be friends. And they actually had an honest relationship after that, which was as co-parents. I thought that was pretty funny. But we also learn that Bronca has been a fighter pretty much her entire life. She fought off creepy old men who hit on her when she was a kid. 11 years old. Yep. What kind of freaking...
1: But this also goes into the oversexualization of people of color, especially children of color, viewing kids who are kids as older and more threatening because their skin is darker. Because we have this perceived notion that they are more adult or older or threatening or whatever even though they're kids
0: we know that she also fought cops at stonewall it's said that she was the one who threw the first brick
1: i mean that's a fun interpretation and stonewall was a riot pride is a
0: riot and now she's fighting against this alien invader and it's also worth pointing out here that She is not just a person of color. She's indigenous. She is descended from the tribe of Indians that originally owned Manhattan Island.
1: I wouldn't say owned. I would say inhabited. Fair enough.
0: Bronca's heritage has taught her exactly what happens when people come in and try to appropriate and change and take for their own where other people are living. And... This gives her a little bit of strength, this knowledge of who she is and where she comes from. lets her finally kick open the final stall door, and in spite of that howling non-Euclidean nothingness within it...
1: Despite the fact that it's a bathroom, I would be crapping my pants.
0: <laughs> yeah. She manages to kick this interloper out, though she... ...earns herself a victory by driving out this invader, this woman in white. It's not without cost, and it's also not a complete and total victory. Nobody gets a total victory here, because throughout all of this, the woman in white has left behind a little tendril growing behind the toilet. And it's also at this point that the city itself bestows all of its historical knowledge onto Bronca. It's not just the borough of the Bronx. It is all of New York City. She becomes essentially the living memory of the city because she represents the oldest part of the city. The Bronx was the first part that was settled. It's also where the Indians lived originally. It's the heart of the history. And of the avatars, Bronca is also the oldest. So she has seen the most just in her own living memory. So it's fitting that she takes on this burden. So I think it's kind of cool. I
1: gotta say this section also has one of my favorite quotes but is not my quote for the episode. Eat a bag of dicks. (laughs) And as we are from Seattle, that has a completely different connotation for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can go, there's one off Broadway. There's, uh, you know, there's the one down on Queen Anne.
1: Okay, so we are talking about Dick's
0: Burgers. Yeah, Dick's Drive-In is a local institution. If you're ever in Seattle, you should check them out. I'm not saying they're great.
1: But you should go and check them out and grab a bag of Dick's. And it doesn't need to be listed as explicit, because we are talking about hamburgers.
0: Yep. So now we come to chapter five, which is the quest for Queens. So we pick up with Manny and Brooklyn on the bus looking for the avatar of Queens. They're kind of at a loose ends for how to do this.
1: Their plan is hop on public transportation and hope that we find something. You know, there's millions of people here and we're looking for one. We'll be successful.
0: It's sort of a needle in the haystack sort of scenario.
1: Thank goodness for modern communication devices, AKA the computer that you keep in your pocket that is nominally a phone. Because, although social media is social media, it can connect us. There is this kind of misunderstanding that just because you can speak means that you will be understood. And I think that that's where social media falls down a lot. Because I express my opinion. I know that I am right. Why don't you all know that I am right?
0: I think social media also has sort of a flattening effect on how we view other people. It tends to make it very easy to turn them into their little avatars. Just whatever they've been able to squeeze into a tweet. And then we turn that into them
1: into a personality
0: and real people are so much more than who they are online especially who they are on twitter or facebook
1: but in this case it is actually useful because there have been stories propagated throughout instagram or twitter or whatever that brooklyn can find that is essentially just weird shirt happening In Queens.
0: While all this is going on, we get Manny doing a little bit of soul searching. Manny, of course, has no memory of who he was before he became the Avatar. He doesn't know his real name, and that's a choice on his part.
1: He is not trying to find out. He honestly doesn't want to dig too deep because he is currently the embodiment of the city, and if he really wanted to... He could just give it up, and he knows that there would be another avatar chosen for the city. But something keeps him from just saying,
0: Fork it. it. He's also grappling with the fact that he is not this hero figure that he likes to think of himself as. He's thinking about how Belle and Madison were able to see the tendrils and everything... And he's starting to realize that it maybe was not because of anything to do with them, but rather because Manny needed them to be able to see that so that he could accomplish his ends. And I think what this gets to is there's a part of Manny, Manhattan, that is incredibly transactional, that is not afraid to use people and spit them out as soon as they're no longer convenient. I mean, Belle is no longer really a part of the story. You know, it seemed like Belle was going to be a constant sidekick who'd be helping out and going along for the ride, but Belle doesn't show up for the rest of this book. And that's because Belle no longer serves a purpose to Manny.
1: Madison only shows up again in terms of how Manny can use her.
0: Because he needs a ride. It's this acknowledgement of... Sort of that dark side of Manhattan, that dark side of New York City. That it does use people and spit people out as soon as they're no longer useful. That views people as things.
1: Wheels, cogs, gears, etc.
0: Remember, he embodies the part of the city that houses the financial district. Wall Street. The New York Stock Exchange. This is where all the investment bankers hang out and all they have is money. So... He and Brooklyn have a little bit of a heart-to-heart about all of this. Manny confesses that he doesn't know who he was before he became the Avatar. And Brooklyn understands a little bit of where he's coming from. She also had to give some stuff up to become the Avatar. She had to give up some of who she was.
1: She had to give up some of who she was in her past to be able to survive her present One of those things was when she had her daughter, she had to make some tough choices. Music as a career is fun, but not stable. And she needed something stable and she needed health insurance. The fact that in the United States, your health insurance is tied inextricably to your career, job, work, production is stupid. Because it's telling you that you don't have the right to be healthy unless you are doing work.
0: And even as Brooklyn was influential as MC free, that's not the same as being wealthy. And that's not the same as having access to things like routine health insurance and things like that.
1: It's not even the same as being secure.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that she was aware of just where her position was. You know. Even as she was influential and she was oftentimes everybody's favorite rapper's favorite rapper, that's a little bit different from being popular and actually making a lot of money. I mean, in the music industry in general, very few acts make the kind of money that allows for these rock star lifestyles that we imagine. Most people are scraping by as best they can, working second jobs to keep a roof over their head and pay for their instruments and studio space and then scraping together what they can at gigs.
1: The embodiment of a passion project. Yeah. Next, though, we have Brooklyn trying to give Manny a rundown of what New York is, boiling down that essence, but also taking the geography of New York and explaining how that isn't actually New York.
0: It's a little more complicated. (laughs) And we have these theories about who they're gonna be looking for. So they're looking for a hardworking non-techie in Queens, a creative with attitude in the Bronx, and then a small town thinker in Staten Island. Well, we've met most of those, We just haven't met our queen's avatar yet. So Manny and Brooklyn start getting little pings in their avatar sense, for lack of a better word. Their spidey sense? Burrow sense, that's what it is. (laughs) That seem to be pointing them towards Jackson Heights. So Manny starts digging on social media, basically going onto Reddit looking for weird things in Jackson Heights. Until they find a picture of an old lady's pool trying to eat a kid. And they figure, yep, that's probably what we're looking for. Yeah. And meanwhile, Brooklyn tracks down a news clipping talking about an art opening in the Bronx featuring a piece from Bronca, a.k.a. Bronca, that also happens to feature a picture of the primary avatar. At this point, they know that they've got one down that they know where they can go. And meanwhile, it sounds like there's something otherworldly here in Queens that they need to address. So now it's time to hail a ride.
1: One thing that actually tickled me a little bit about the hailing a ride, they do go on public transportation. They go on a bus and then they go on the N train. But Brooklyn talks about a limo, which is what you were talking about with like the car services, the town cars. Yeah. In our last episode. But they also are addressing the fact that Uber and Lyft are taking over some of the business from the yellow cabs.
0: Absolutely. That's something I've been following fairly closely, especially as those services have proliferated. The traditional cab model is basically the cab company and the driver purchase badges that authorize them to operate within the city. And each of these badges are good for a set period of time they cost about 30 grand so it's not inconsiderable and then the driver essentially pays them down through their fares A portion of their fare goes to pay off the cost of the badge and as part of that they're part of a union they have an actual reporting structure that they can appeal to they have protections as employees These ride-sharing services, you know, Lyft and Uber and what have you, have cannibalized that entire industry and replaced these drivers with independent contractors who the services don't owe anything to. And in fact, they're living their lives at the mercy of these services. Even if you say, yeah, well, uh, Lyft is better, right? They really aren't. The fact is that you cannot break even at the costs that you pay for a ride sharing service. The only reason people had the idea of a cheap lift or a cheap Uber was because these services were operating at a loss in a period where they were funded exclusively by venture capital. And their goal was to come in cheap and undercut the mainline cab companies until those cab companies died out and then Lyft and Uber could raise their prices to what their services were actually worth and costing them to provide. And meanwhile, most of that money was getting siphoned out of the driver's pockets and into the central coffers of Lyft and Uber. They were a great big bait-and-switch operation, and they still are. As much as people say, oh, I don't want to take a cab. Yeah.
1: It's exploitative and ooky. And that is where we leave... Brooklyn, and Manny, who are hailing an Uber.
0: Yep. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and move into Recommended Thing. It's your turn? Yep. So this week I have chosen Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Yay! So as some of you may know, I'm a lifelong Star Trek fan. I've been a big fan of all of the series since I was a little kid. I remember watching old school Star Trek and the Next Generation with my parents occasionally, you know, I'd catch it when they were watching it. And then when I was in fourth grade, I really started watching it myself and absolutely fell in love with it.
1: That's wonderful timing for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which to this day, I think both of us still look at and go, but that's my favorite.
0: Oh yeah. I still go back and rewatch Deep Space Nine periodically just cause I love it so much. And it's been really good to see Star Trek come back to television. Over the past few years, we've had Star Trek Discovery, and Picard, and Lower Decks, and then Prodigy, and now we've got Strange New Worlds.
1: And some of them are better than others.
0: I will definitely agree with that. One thing that you may have noticed in New Trek is that it's so caught up in these ongoing storylines, It's very hard to have individual episodes that stand on their own.
1: It's also kind of hard to bring in something that's just purely joyful. Not saying that Lower Decks and Prodigy haven't been able to do that. I'm saying that live action Trek is like that. Witness all of Picard.
0: Yeah, and even as Discovery occasionally has funny scenes, especially as the seasons have progressed, those have become fewer and farther between.
1: I will say though that Discovery is one of my favorite shows for a different reason. And it's because they've finally addressed the fact that gay people exist, non-binary people exist, trans people exist, and it's not all told in metaphor. And it's not all told in tragedies.
0: This is true.
1: But we're talking about Strange New Worlds.
0: We are talking about Strange New Worlds. The thing that I love about Strange New Worlds is that it remembers that you could have these incredibly dramatic and dark story arcs that could be broken up by the crew having to play a game of baseball against the Vulcans and losing. And that would be something that would be that necessary palate cleanser to help leaven all of the proceedings but it would also reveal something core and essential to each of these characters and tell us about who they are and what makes them tick in ways that are both insightful and humorous. Strange New Worlds gets this.
1: I do have a feeling we're going to have a few spoilery bits about the show. It's brand new, so I think if I read you right, You're going to talk a little bit about the most recent episode, and I just wanted
0: to say spoilers. I am not going to talk about it specifically, but it is an example of what I am talking about. Okay. I'm not going to reference plot points or anything like that. The fact is, you can have an episode that is almost entirely comedic, and doesn't really contribute to this great big overarching plot that is going on with a capital P, you know? (laughs) It's just a small scale story that's just a ton of fun. And each one of these stories has that. Each of these episodes are pretty self-contained. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and they don't rely on you having seen every single episode proceeding to make sense of them. But at the same time, they each contribute to the overarching growth of each character. So it doesn't feel like you could just completely watch all of them out of order or that the characters don't have any room to grow.
1: I would actually say that it's doing a really good job of character study in a way that isn't just
0: bleak. Exactly. We see these characters as much through their triumphs and their foils as it is through tragedies and heartbreaks. We see them coming to terms with who they are. Who are they when they're off the clock? The cast is phenomenal, especially Anson Mount as Captain Pike. Oh yeah. I love Rebecca Romaine as his first officer, Una Chin. Ethan Peck does a really good job playing Spock, which is a thankless job, honestly. How do you follow Leonard Nimoy? But I would say he does a pretty good job of inhabiting the role and making it his own. I'd also like to call out Celia Rose Gooding, who plays Uhura. All of these actors do a fantastic job whether they're playing completely original roles or legacy characters. They've hit that balance of helping us see who these people are now, and then who they will be when they're portrayed by Nichelle Nichols and Leonard Nimoy, for instance. I just think they do a great job all throughout. It's just a ton of fun. Really what they do is they find that balance of dramatic stakes and just joy. Fundamentally, this is about a group of diverse people from all backgrounds with all sorts of interesting and different skill sets united by a love of learning and exploration. I think this really embodies Roddenberry's IDIC principle, which is infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And I really think that we could all really love working in that sort of environment professionally. Yeah, there's a bit of competence porn here, but it's worth it. I love me some competence porn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm right there with you.
0: Anyway, that's my recommended thing. I believe you have the quote of the week.
1: I do. And like I said, I was contemplating, again, hamburgers, eat a bag of dicks. But I think I found one that actually suits this better. And it's from Sao Paulo. Okay. Home isn't where the heart is. It's where the wind feels right.
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty noticeable. Sometimes it's just something as simple as the climate, the lay of the land, the way the air smells.
1: Familiarity. But also, I know that we've both had instances of going places and either feeling comfortable or on edge. As we've gone around, even our little suburban town, city, Hamlet, whatever, trying to figure out what area we'd actually like to live in, when and if we get to have a house. When we get a choice that wasn't predicated on, all right, I got a job 300 miles away. Now we have to figure out where we're going to live. Let's just do it by map.
0: Yeah, wouldn't do that again.
1: Yeah, but there are things that are going to be comfortable to you. I mean, it's even something as simple as we have set things that we buy from the grocery store that we tend to eat on a regular basis. Like we don't drink soft drinks, but we drink soda water. And it's a little bit foreign to us to go to a home where they don't have soda water, but they do have lots of soda, like sugary soda. It's just a little bit different. I have a lot of weird restrictions on what I can and cannot eat. So we have very specific brands in our house, going somewhere else where they eat something just a little bit different is a little bit weird, right? So whether you feel comfortable or not really depends on those comfortable items and those things that are in your control. And I'd say that we're probably going to take a trip to visit your family soon, and it will be a different feeling where they live than our comfortable insular place that we've been kind of bunkered for the last two or three years because of, I mean, COVID and other external factors that kind of prevented us from traveling away from here all that much. And so while it will be home-like because of the people and because we have a loving connection with your parents, your sister, our little niecelet, you know. The things that make your home your home are if the wind feels right, if the space feels right. And to me, our space feels right when we are cuddled with our cats and when we are practicing our music and when we are surrounded by the things that bring us joy and familiarity. And I think that there's nothing wrong with wanting that, but also being open to some changes.
0: You got to put yourself out there where you can feel the wind. That's a good one. Thank you. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me.
1: Thank you for potting with me.
0: And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone.
1: Before we end, we do have at least one listener that we get to talk to on Twitter that lives in Manhattan. And she sent us this beautiful photograph of the FDR at sunset and she says the FDR isn't all monsters and umbrellas
0: well I am really glad that she's enjoying this series as much as we're enjoying making it
1: yes so we're more than happy to share things like that with everybody and I retweeted it you should go look at it it's a really really pretty photograph here you go oh wow yeah It's things like that that make me happy and that make me excited to continue making our podcast.
0: So yeah, keep sharing those.
1: Definitely. And we're at WaystonePod on Twitter if you are looking for us. Anyway, now let's go over our thank yous, including letting everyone know what we're going to read next week.
0: Join us next time on The Interlude We Became, episode three, where we will be talking about chapters 6 through 8 of The City We Became.
1: We would like to thank our friend, Shawnee Jang, for our theme music.
0: And many thanks to N.K. Jemison for creating this world we've enjoyed exploring.
1: Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough.
0: Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough.
1: If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com waystonepod.
0: And as always, here's to one more day above the roses.
1: To one more day above the roses.
0: Ding! I
1: love you, thank you. What's it? You have a smile, should I be suspicious of your smile? No, are you sure? Positive. Are you going to tell me why you have a smile on your face? You'll see. That's not reassuring
0: that's That's a you problem.